Good afternoon. It's a pleasure to be here in Portland this afternoon to hear the last of our cases for today's docket. Judge Hurwitz and I, my name is Mary Murguia, would like to welcome all of you and we'd also like to extend a welcome and appreciation to Judge Josephine Staten from the Central District of California who is sitting with us here by designation and assisting us with our docket today. Thank you, Judge Staten. We're ready to proceed with the case, the last case remaining on our docket today and the case is Kelsey Rose Juliana versus the United States of America. If the parties are ready to proceed, please come forward. Good afternoon, Your Honors, and may it please the Court. I'm Jeff Clark from the Justice Department. With me at council table are Andrew Mergen and Summer Engels and I'm here on behalf of eight cabinet agencies and three components of the Executive Office of the President of the United States. These are the entities that have been made defendant in this action and this is a suit that we believe is a direct attack on the separation of powers and on the ability of Congress to define what processes do in administrative law regimes, particularly ones that are regulatorily complex. This action is one that appears to be one to enforce the Constitution, but in reality it's nothing more than a direct assault on the constitutional design. That assault manifests in three particular ways. First, this is a case that does not present a case or controversy within the meaning of Article 3 of the Constitution because it would not have been cognizable, excuse me, at the courts at Westminster. Nor is it a situation in which Congress has created some new set of rights where, according to Supreme Court precedent, Congress can articulate new injuries, new causation chains, design new remedies to fix those problems. It fits into neither of those buckets. It's not a case or controversy. It's outside the parameters of Article 3. The second attack, which relates to the first, is that quite to the contrary, this action by its very design is one that appears to try to take on and skirt limitations in the Administrative Procedure Act, the Charter of Administrative Law in America, and also the organic statutes, organic statutes that often direct review, particularly to this court or other courts of appeals in the first instance and not to the district courts, and certainly not to one district court in one part of the country. The final way in which this case is an attack on the constitutional design is that plaintiffs are essentially trying to constitutionalize administrative law. That can't be permitted. It would permit any enterprising litigant essentially to say that if you're talking about a situation in which life or liberty or both are on the line, if you can frame your challenge, you know, and you can do that to almost any administrative regime, especially one in the health and safety area, you could then say you have a constitutional challenge that can be taken outside the parameters of the specialized statutes that Congress has set up for review. Is there no set of facts that would allow a suit of this sort? Let's take it out of its present context. Let's assume that there was an immediate threat to the life of various plaintiffs, and that threat could only be averted by executive branch action. Are you saying the courts would have no role in doing that, and if the executive branch decided not to act, the plaintiffs would have no option but to die? Well, Judge Hurwitz, I think that the design of the Constitution is that exigent situations are ones that are, as you're suggesting, committed to the executive. Obviously, military action would be the principal example, and the framers wanted an energetic executive to be able to respond on the spot to those kinds of threats. Is the answer to my question no? I think the answer to your question as framed in this particular context... Well, no, I really do think, I mean, I assume your position is the answer to my question is no. That may well be constitutionally correct, but without the lecture, isn't the answer no? 
The answer is no for the exigency reasons I gave, and also because the harms that are being articulated here are not ones that manifest immediately. Well, but that's why I asked you a hypothetical. I said, what if there were an immediate threat to life that the executive could ward off by taking action? Assume that I'm going to ask the same question to the other side, so I'll ask you this one. Assume that we have rogue raiders coming across the Canadian border into the Northwest, and they're kidnapping children of a certain age and murdering them, and the White House refuses to do anything, and Congress doesn't act. Can those people go to court to compel action? Your answer, I take it, has to be no, doesn't it? My answer is no because that's not the institutional competence of the judicial branch, Your Honor. It's not to deal with exigent threats like that. That's what the executive branch is for. And so the remedy, however painful it might be, if one really thought that you had a situation like that where children were being kidnapped and the president or local governors weren't doing anything about it, is the political remedy of removing them from office. Even if you will suffer all the damage before that can occur? Yes, Your Honor, because that's the whole notion of the separation of powers, right? Each of the branches of government in our three-branch system have their own institutional competencies, and we have mechanisms to deal with executive malfeasance, executive misfeasance, but it's not for the judiciary to take over and make subsidiary the executive branch or the Congress, which is what the Clean Air Council judge said in the Eastern District of Virginia that this lawsuit is actually calling for. The bar to show injury and redressability, I'd like to talk about that for a moment, in environmental cases is not incredibly high. Would you agree? As a general matter, since aesthetic injuries, Your Honor, can be actionable and give rise to Article III standing, yes, although I would say that climate change is unique, and I want to talk about Massachusetts versus EPA if I could. I would like for you to address why the plaintiffs failed to meet those requirements here and what more did they need to show in your view? Sure. So I think that we think all three elements are flunked, but let me start with Massachusetts versus EPA because I think it's a good framing basis for the case. Use the term flunked. I'm sorry? Use the term flunked. We think that the three elements of standing. I think there's a lot of students in the courtroom that might be sensitive to that particular term. My apologies, Your Honor. Infelicitous phrasing. I apologize. But we don't think it meets any of those three elements, but if I could, I'd like to start with Massachusetts versus EPA as a framing device because in that case, obviously, the injuries that were being alleged were related to global climate change like here, but the Supreme Court found standing with two key elements that are missing in this case. First, the case was brought by a state, was brought by several states, but the Supreme Court focused on Massachusetts and said that states get special solicitude when they are bringing claims. It's basically in that situation a kind of sovereign on sovereign fight. And second, they said that procedural injuries are ones where the normal Article III requirements are essentially relaxed to some degree. And this is not a procedural case, Your Honor. This isn't a NEPA case. This isn't a case seeking, as in Mass versus EPA, to vindicate a petition for rulemaking. This is a case that is actually seeking significant judicial review of executive branch and congressional action or inaction, and it's seeking substantive injunctions to enforce that. So in that regard, it's very different than Massachusetts versus EPA, and we think for that reason that that's why that case doesn't permit standing. Massachusetts versus EPA didn't set out to settle forever the parameters of Article III standing. It dealt with the standing of a state suing as the owner of land within the state to raise this claim and said the state might have a higher standing to raise a statutory claim. I'm not sure that Massachusetts versus EPA was meant by the court to say, if you're not a state, you can never sue. And we don't here deal with a statutory cause of action. But it seems to me if this were a statutory cause of action, you would not be arguing against standing, would you? These plaintiffs claim injury in fact. They claim causation from the lack of action on climate change. If Congress had passed a statute that said citizens may sue under those circumstances, that would be perfectly constitutional, wouldn't it? 
Well, our second bucket of issues, Your Honor, to be sure, gets into the fact that... Okay, before you get to your second bucket, could you answer my question? Yes, but no, I would say, Your Honor, that there was obviously a vehement dissent in that case that the Chief Justice wrote. I know, but I don't get to count all the dissents that I agree with, so let's just stick with the majority. All right, but the point, Your Honor, as to the answer to the dissent was these two unique features of special solicitude and proceedings. So now deal with my question then. Let's assume Congress passed a statute. Let's assume these plaintiffs resorted to the regular legislative process, and Congress said, by God, you're right. We're going to pass a statute called the Environmental Due Process Act, and it will provide that any individual who can demonstrate injury in fact from the executive branch's inaction on climate change has a cause of action. You wouldn't be arguing absence of standing, would you? So let me compare this to our NEPA cases, Your Honor. So in NEPA... No, but you and I are having a difficult communication. Would you have an absence of standing argument in that circumstance? We would argue that there's an absence of standing unless someone had independent standing for an environmental harm that was direct to them and more immediate. Sure, okay, so somebody was... The NEPA cases I was mentioning... I left that out of my hypothetical, I'm sorry. Somebody said climate change has caused me an illness, climate change has destroyed my property, somebody claims a personal injury in fact. Under those circumstances, there would be standing, would there not? Your Honor, again, if we didn't have independent injury that was not climate change related, that the climate change injury as an administrative law matter could essentially piggyback on, no, we would not agree with that. We would say that that's equally a generalized grievance. So I can't concede that territory. Well, see, my problem with our discussion here is that you keep changing my hypothetical to match what you want to argue. So let me give you a hypothetical that I hope you can answer. Let's assume that some plaintiff says climate change is occurring, and because climate change is occurring, my particular disease has been exacerbated, and I've been made more sick because of it. And Congress had passed this statute that I talked about. You would not be contending that that... You might be contending the statute was unconstitutional, you might be contending that it violated separation of powers, but you would not be contending that individual lacks standing, would you? Well, Your Honor, I think that the answer to that is as long as the hypothetical includes the ability to say that the statute might, you know, violate Article 3, then I think we're saying the same thing. That's different than standing. See, you're making separate arguments here, and what I'm trying to figure out is which are dependent on the other. I'm going to tell you my inclination is to think that these individuals are claiming an injury in fact, but that it's much more difficult to find whether that injury is redressable or whether it vouches on... It intrudes on other governmental powers. But you keep saying that they don't have even the first element of standing, which is injury in fact, and that's why I'm asking you these questions. Sure, I understand, Your Honor, but so maybe we can agree to disagree on the injury in fact problem because I wouldn't concede that, and that's certainly not the way we defend our NEPA cases, and so that's one reason why, you know, this case would have earth-shattering consequences. It would really change the standing law if you were to hold that there was standing. But let me talk about redressability, which I think is the single most difficult prong for the plaintiffs to meet. I mean, in this situation, we have, you know, one in which one district court judge in the country is, you know, acting to put... impose a plan on basically the entire executive branch of the country to tell them to, you know, stop having inaction on climate change, to do additional things to combat it. That's sort of something that is, you know, radical. It's anathema. It doesn't comport with the mandamus regime, the writ regime of reviewing administrative law issues that preceded the APA. You need to have... Did the Supreme Court of the United States impose that regime on the executive branch? I'm sorry, I don't understand your question. You said one district judge, so I'm giving you nine Supreme Court justices. Could they impose the regime? No, Your Honor, because, well, I mean, they... So your argument is... They're the last resort, but... Your argument isn't about one district judge. Your argument is about the judiciary writ large, is it not? It's about the judiciary writ large, but it becomes a more acute problem if you have one district judge who could do it, because that district judge is one judge compared to the entire Congress. Yeah, see, but my problem with that is that if the judge entered an order and stayed it until it got up to the Supreme Court, 
it would not be one judge making anybody do something it would be the supreme court so it's not the problem i read your argument you're not quarreling with whether judge akin reaches a different conclusion than a judge someplace else you're quarreling whether any judge sitting anywhere any number the three of us nine on the supreme court or one on the district court can deal with this issue correct we are certainly arguing that but we're also arguing there's a special problem with one judge doing it well we could solve that problem because we could stay the order until the supreme court reviewed it and then your argument would be three judges shouldn't be able to do it well our argument right is that it's not appropriate so that's i think that's the point judge hurwitz i understand that but i still think the fact that it's relevant that one judge has done it particularly this is actually a good segue to move into my second bucket of arguments wait i i still have a question about redressability and massachusetts versus epa so leaving aside that it was the state as a party etc um one of the things that we can take from that case is that the court said that the that it had jurisdiction to decide whether the epa had violated its duty to take steps to slow or reduce emissions and that there didn't have to be a wholesale redressability that partial redressability is sufficient um lessening the harm would be sufficient is that argument translatable to this case we think that argument is not translatable to this case because that was an argument that worked when you were trying to vindicate a procedural right and here they're not trying to vindicate a procedural right they're trying to get a substantive incredibly substantive structural injunction against the executive branch in the congress and that's a radically different situation but courts have issued structural injunctions in the past systemic injunctions correct they've done around v plaza they've done it against the states your honor but that's a different situation it's one in which again it's good segue to my second argument um you know there aren't issues of a waiver of federal sovereign immunity there aren't issues of how uh congress has decided to set up judicial review regimes those judicial review regimes for instance in the clean air act under section 307 uh b it directs review to the court of appeals in the first instance it has a special provision that any nationwide clean air act case uh goes directly to the dc circuit and no other circuit that's also why it's important your honor uh you know judge hurwitz that this is one district judge because there are wholesale administrative law regimes that are being circumvented by this lawsuit um you know under the clean air act there's this provision going to the court of appeals the epca statute has one for uh, motor vehicle fuel economy standards the oxla statute has one the eap act 1992 has one there's just a whole slew of them your honor and um you can't just sidestep that approach especially not in the guise of saying you're vindicating due process you're actually subverting due process because congress under our constitutional design gets to say what processes do in your brief uh you argue that this case is not a case or controversy i think you already referenced that under article three but this appears to to be a separation of powers or political question argument but i noticed that in your briefing on on appeal uh that you didn't uh specifically brief that political uh question doctrine um why not if the court were to decide the case on a basis arising from article three should it decide it based on the lack of article three standing or based on the separation of powers uh or the political question doctrine so your honor i think you have an abundance of doctrines that all harmoniously get to the same place um you know i would say that we think that uh this falls sort of in the larger rubric of a case that's not a case or controversy because it couldn't have been maintained at the courts at westminster and as judge hurwitz was pointing out with his hypotheticals about what if congress did create sort of the climate change due process act but sort of precisely congress hasn't created the the climate change due process act and because congress hasn't created it it doesn't fall into the exception that that i think the supreme court you know uh most prominently i think of it in its separate opinion that justice kennedy wrote in lujan saying that you know new change of causation new remedies and injuries can be defined so it doesn't fall either into the old that predated the constitution or into the new in terms of congress defining what the rights can be in fact as i was pointing out this is a suit that is designed to circumvent a whole bunch of statutes it also circumvents public participation rights right you don't have notice and comment anymore now you have people all over the country who might be affected by this gigantic structural injunction they're going to have to watch you know the district of oregon or the district of minnesota it's really just you know an untenable 
burden, Your Honor, and it also eliminates record-based review, which is one of the foundational elements of modern administrative law. You want to reserve the balance of your time? So just a clarification, is that my time left, even including rebuttal? All right. Thanks very much, Your Honors. Good afternoon. May it please the Court. I'm Julia Olson, and together with Philip Gregory and Andrea Rogers, we represent the 21 youth plaintiffs, many of whom are in the courtroom today, and we thank the Court for accommodating us and expediting this appeal. The stay in this case should be lifted, and the case should be remanded for trial for three primary reasons. And I'd like to get through those reasons, and then, Judge Hurwitz, I'd like to answer your first hypothetical that you asked, because I think it raises an important issue. The district court made determinations that there were material facts that are in dispute in this case. And being most familiar with the record, the district court decided this case should go to trial, and that would provide the best opportunity for appellate review. And we review that determination de novo, with no deference to the district court's determination, correct? Very smart district judge. She made that conclusion. I have two smart colleagues. They're stuck with me. We review all that de novo, correctly? You review the determination of whether— There's a material issue of fact to go to trial de novo. So we give no deference to the district judge's determination. Except for with respect to the facts that she has found under the Mendocino case. It seems to me you're here either on summary judgment or a motion to dismiss, one of the two. And we review both of those decisions de novo. Don't you agree? That's correct, Your Honor. However, in the government's brief, they say that there are only conclusions of law with respect to standing and state-created danger, but they actually raise factual disputes. I understand, but the question of whether there are material fact disputes here is one the three of us can decide without any deference to the district judge. Do you agree? You surely have to. That's Civil Procedure 102, isn't it? I think that the courts apply deference to the district court's determination that there are issues in dispute. But this court has a record in front of it, and it can review the facts that are before it. The second issue is about the question of the APA. And plaintiffs have the ability to bring their case directly under the Fifth Amendment because they've argued that the government has deprived them of life, personal security, family autonomy, and their right of equal protection under the law as a quasi-suspect class of children, not just a suspect class. And those claims have not been addressed by the district court's two orders that are on review here. And so this case can be remanded for trial for the district court to make determinations as to those Fifth Amendment claims. The only claims that the government has argued and that the district court has addressed are the claims related to the newly recognized climate right, the public trust right, and the district court addressed the state-created danger claim and said that there were disputed facts that needed to go forward. Am I wrong? I read the government's brief as arguing that there was no substantive Fifth Amendment right to a safe environment. Did I misread the government's brief in that respect? The government did say that, and that's a mischaracterization of plaintiffs' claims. Well, whatever Fifth Amendment right you're claiming is a substantive right, is it not? That's correct. It's a substantive right. They're saying it doesn't exist. However one characterizes each other's arguments, that's an issue they brought before us, is it not? I don't think that they have argued that a fundamental right to life or personal security or family autonomy. They have argued that there is no substantive Fifth Amendment right to a safe environment and all the things that flow from it in your argument. And so I think that issue is directly in front of us. It would be useful if you could tell us why you think there is. 
The issue of whether the district court's recognition of a climate system that sustains human life, that is squarely in front of your honors. So if we were to disagree with the district court's finding on that, your Fifth Amendment constitutional claims would be dismissed, would they not? No, your honor. Why not? The reason is that plaintiffs have also claimed the deprivation, the affirmative deprivation of their rights to life, to personal security, to family autonomy. Those rights have already been recognized by the Supreme Court or are explicit in the U.S. Constitution. What cases can you give me that suggest that inaction by the federal government deprives somebody of a substantive constitutional right? The only context where a government's failure to act can constitute a Fifth Amendment violation is in the context of state-created danger. In this court's line of cases... But can a state create a danger by failure to act? That's what I'm asking. I understand when the state goes out and puts a cone on the highway and you run into it, they're responsible for it because they've created the danger. But your argument here is that the danger is created by the inaction of the federal government in these areas. No, your honor. Well, no, let me finish. To the extent you are arguing that, I think you may be arguing it, you may think you're not, can you cite me any case that says that the inaction by government creates a danger? No, I don't think the Fifth Amendment provides plaintiffs with a claim for pure inaction. But it does provide them a claim when the government has affirmatively acted to promote a fossil fuel energy system and to allow federal public lands to be extracted and to almost 25% of U.S. emissions come from federal public lands. And when the federal government controls the system, facilitates it, subsidizes it, promotes it as it does, that creates a claim for a substantive due process violation. But you're suing on the executive branch here, correct? That's correct. Let's assume again, it's hypothetical. And the United States, your honor. Right, the United States. You don't have to tell me my facts are wrong because they probably are. But let's assume Congress creates a statute that says we want to promote mining on federal lands. And executive branch, you can decide when to let people mine. And they do and they mine coal and they use it and terrible things happen. Can you sue the executive branch for following the statute that Congress gave them? Without going through the Administrative Procedure Act and arguing those associations? Yes, you can because most of the authority given to these defendants is discretionary authority. So when government uses discretionary authority to perpetrate a constitutional violation and put children in harm's way with deliberate indifference to that harm and to continue to knowingly promote a fossil fuel energy system, when in the government's own briefs and in the record in this case, they admit that there's a monumental threat to young people. What's your authority for that? The record site authority, your honor. What's your case site authority for what you just said? So I think this court can look to the County of Sacramento versus Lewis that sets the standard for danger creation claims. And it says that when government's conduct is conscious shocking, which is a deeply factual inquiry, that there can be a substantive due process violation. And then in this court's line of cases, the most recent of which is Hernandez versus the city of San Jose. And that was the case around the Trump rally where the city, the police department, had developed a plan and had policies in place for how to manage the danger that they knew existed. And this court found that the funneling of people into a dangerous situation created a state-created danger claim for those plaintiffs. I thought what we decided in that case was that their First Amendment rights had been violated by the way the government acted. Am I correct about that? No, it wasn't just First Amendment. There was state-created danger that the court found on review of qualified immunity that those claims could go forward. Let's assume you win. We get to the end of the case. I always like to ask people this. And you're writing the judgment. What does the judgment say? The judgment says that these defendants, through declaratory relief, have violated these plaintiffs' Fifth Amendment rights to 
life, personal security. And must therefore do what? You're not asking for damages, so tell me what the relief is. So the decree, the injunctive decree that plaintiffs seek is for the defendants to use their existing authority and the planning mechanisms that are already in place to prepare a national energy plan that transitions the nation away from fossil fuels. And who judges the adequacy or inadequacy of that plan? Judge Aiken? Yes, Judge Aiken, but just as in cases like Brown v. Plata and some of the desegregation cases, district court judges can appoint special masters to assist them with the complexities of overseeing the enforcement of their order. And as Brown v. Plata said, what the Supreme Court said in that case, is that when a court issues an injunctive decree, it actually has a mandatory duty to retain jurisdiction and oversee implementation. Could the plan that you foresee be undertaken without any congressional action? Yes, Your Honor. In fact, we have expert evidence in the record as to the feasibility of the remedy, the economic viability of a remedy in this case, and there's abundant statutory authority that the executive branch already uses to manage the national energy system that is based on fossil fuels. You say we would direct the United States, and by the United States you mean these agencies that you've listed? Who are we telling this to? So it's plaintiff's burden at trial to demonstrate the responsibility and the conduct that is infringing the rights of these various defendants. So the Department of Transportation and EPA have certain authority. They set standards that is allowing the dangerous levels of pollution. Right now, could you tell me who we would be directing that to, that order to? Because you're asking us, you appear to be requesting some sort of affirmative action by the court. We would not be striking down anything. We would not be telling an agency to do something different, I guess. Instead, we would be affirmatively, from what I can tell, telling the government to do something. I'm trying to figure out if we've done anything like that on this scale, to this proportion, almost drawing on a clean slate, and what your best authority is, especially when you have implicated so many different agencies in your allegations. So the order would be directed to the named defendants, the defendant agencies in this case that have the authority to implement the remedy. And the scale of the problem is so big because of the systemic conduct of the government. The cause of climate change is not just third parties, even though the government says that it is in their brief, but without providing any evidence to the court to support that finding. And that's one of the issues that would be presented at trial, is that evidence. So the defendants, they would be ordered to do this, much like in Brown v. Board of Education, school districts and states were ordered to desegregate entire school systems. Or in Hills v. Gautreaux, HUD was directed by the court, along with state and local agencies, to desegregate public housing. So whenever there's a government system that is causing such catastrophic infringement to fundamental rights, it is actually the duty of the court, starting with the district court, to issue a decree that can redress that constitutional violation. So is there the state-federal distinction that your colleague on the other side was making, in terms of our ability, the court's ability, to issue what would be a systemic injunction? Brown v. Board of Education would have been as to the states. Brown v. Plata was as to the state of California. Is this different here because we're talking about the federal government? It is, Your Honor. I think it's actually an easier decree. Because in those cases, it was the federal courts issuing an injunctive decree to state and local governments. And here, it's the federal court issuing a decree to defendants within the executive branch. Do you think federalism is more important than separation of powers? It strikes me as an equally difficult problem, doesn't it? We're dealing with other constituent branches of government and telling them what to do. And again, I think the separation of powers issue is 
is not here. And if it were, the government would have briefed below the political question doctrine, which sets forth the test under Baker v. Carr. Well, the political question doctrine is a little bit different. We're dealing there with something that the Constitution textually, unmistakably gives to a different branch of government. I take it that's not really the issue here. The issue here is whether this branch of government, embodied by the three of us today, has the ability to issue the relief that your clients seek. You don't doubt that Congress and the President could give you the relief you seek without us. I don't think Congress and the President ever will without this. Well, but you see, we may have the wrong Congress and the wrong President. That's occurred from time to time over history. The real question for us is whether or not we get to intervene because of that. I don't, I mean, you present compelling evidence that we have a real problem. You can make compelling evidence that we have inaction by the other two branches of government. It may even rise to the level of criminal neglect. The tough question for me, I suspect for my colleagues, is do we get to act because of that? And so, you said you were going to answer my hypothetical. So, that's what that was aimed at, to see if you can help me. Because I think it's very relevant, and I want to emphasize that this case is not a failure to act case. So, your hypothetical posed a failure to act in the face of an outside threat. But the threat here is intensely affirmative. And I would really point the court to... So, if they were local bandits coming, they weren't coming across the border, they were Oregon, the Oregon gangs were attacking the Oregon youth, would you have a cause of action against any executive branch to make them stop it? If the government was not involved in that third party activity, and it was not acting affirmatively, there would be no claim. So, it's not the government's inaction here that you attack, it's the government's action? That's correct. And I think the court should look at Burton versus Wilmington Parking Authority as one example of the constitutional standard that exists for when government is so involved in private activity that it's constitutionally liable. So, there what the court looked at was, was there publicly owned land involved? Were there public funds used? Did the government earn profits? Did they have interdependence with third parties? So, there are tests that the court looks at to see if the affirmative government conduct meets the test for being so involved that it can be constitutionally liable. So, to the extent that you're attacking affirmative government conduct rather than inaction, why doesn't the government's argument that there are established procedures for doing so? If you don't like that the government is leasing land to mining companies, the APA allows you to attack those decisions in a different way. If to the extent you're attacking affirmative action, why doesn't the government's APA argument make some sense? Because plaintiffs can't bring the claim against the systemic pattern and practice that the government is engaged in under the APA. Under the APA, they can only bring a discrete challenge to a final agency action, and that's not this case. And as this court has held in Navajo Nation, and as the Supreme Court has held in Webster versus Doe, plaintiffs have the ability to bring a cause of action directly under the Fifth Amendment. You confuse this case a little bit, or at least I'm a little confused, regarding your Energy Policy Act references to Section 201 and DOE Order Number 3041, and I want to give you a chance to talk to me about that. You raise this in the complaint, and it appears in your prayers for relief. So in one sense, this appeal seems to be focused on the big ticket relief, that is whether the court should order the defendants to implement some sort of large-scale remedial plan. But then you also have these references to Section 201 and Order 3041 specifically, and I'm looking to see what injuries might stem from that statute and order for purposes of standing in particular. And then the only thing you reference is procedural injury. You were denied some procedural right. And so I'm a little confused as to how that relates to what you're talking about, because to me it seems like you have almost like two separate lawsuits. 
in one here, and I'm not sure you fill out what you need to for the attacks on the order from the DOE. Are these the same or different injuries than the ones that stem from the larger climate impact allegations that you're alleging from these governmental policies? And is that procedural right specific enough and particularized enough to meet the injury impact prong? If you can just answer those questions, I'd appreciate it. Your Honor, we're not bringing a procedural right claim against the implementation of Section 201 through the issue of the order. We brought a challenge to Section 201 as being unconstitutional, and here's why. It was the only statutory provision we could find in our extensive review of congressional authority to these agencies that created a mandatory duty to do something that facilitated fossil fuels. And so 201 requires the Department of Energy to grant licenses for export and import of liquefied natural gas without any review. So your position on that is that Congress lacks the power to give the Department of Energy that directive? We argue that that provision is unconstitutional because it's promoting fossil fuels, which are infringing the constitutional rights. But you're also attacking Order 201, correct? No, we're attacking it as a function of the statute's unconstitutional. So you're not making any claim that the order is either procedurally or substantively? No, Your Honor. And this issue about Section 201 hasn't been briefed. We'd be happy to provide briefing if it would be helpful. But then on the other one, your argument is that wholly apart from the – because you're not attacking the action of the Department of Energy. You're attacking the statute. What you're saying is that wholly apart from the action of the Department of Energy, the statute is facially unconstitutional? It's facially unconstitutional because it promotes fossil fuel energy, which is threatening the lives and personal security of these youth plaintiffs. It mandates fossil fuel LNG exports. So it all goes back to your assertion of a constitutional right? It is, and in our view, Section 201 and the mandatory duty to grant entities that ability to export liquefied natural gas is part of the overall fossil fuel system that's operated by these federal defendants. But that was the one non-discretionary law we could find. Every other statute that we've reviewed that facilitates the national energy system gives discretion to these agencies to bring the system into constitutional compliance and deliver energy and provide for energy in a way that – I want to understand your argument about that statute. Your argument is that statute is facially unconstitutional because it promotes the use of fossil fuel? Yes, just Section 201 of the statute. That's the only part of the statute you're seeking to strike? That's correct, Your Honor. So I want to go back to redressability for a moment because in your briefing, there's a lot of reference to the court's duty to declare what the Constitution is and whether there's a constitutional violation. And you seem to indicate that even declaratory relief, just a declaration that there is such a right and that it has been violated, may be sufficient. At least that's what I'm gathering from the briefing, that it may alleviate the psychological injuries that have been experienced by the plaintiffs. And so tell me, what is the lowest level of redressability you think is appropriate here? In other words, is declaratory relief sufficient? Because then I have a problem in terms of perhaps standing. It seems to create standing without boundaries if mere psychological injuries and the redressing of those can be sufficient relief for you. Or do you need actual relief? Do you need a judgment that says, here's an injunction, go create a remedial plan using your discretionary authority agencies, and then the court, as it did in Brown v. Plata, will determine whether you've done it properly? First of all, Your Honor, declaratory relief can be meaningful, as it was in Brown v. Board of Education, as it was in the Catholic League for Religious and Civil Rights v. San Francisco. 
but it's not going to provide the full relief that plaintiffs seek. And we do think that a plan that doesn't specify, the court not specifying what the plan would entail or the specific policies that could be used, but merely sets a constitutional standard as the Supreme Court affirmed in Brown v. Plata with the 137.5% prison capacity number that, again, was based on a lot of scientific evidence that the court relied on from the trials below to determine that that would protect the constitutional rights of the prisoners. The court started in that case with a constitutional right against cruel and unusual punishment and said overcrowding can constitute that, and therefore now we're going to come up with a remedy. We still have to find this constitutional right that you assert in order to give this remedy, do we not? This court does need to say there's a constitutional right at stake, but Your Honor doesn't need to find it because it's in the Constitution and the Fifth Amendment that the plaintiffs have fundamental rights to life and liberties, and the Supreme Court has already recognized that the liberties that we all hold include our right to bodily integrity and personal security and family autonomy. So this court doesn't need to step out of bounds and recognize any kind of new right. It can stick with the bedrock fundamental rights that we all hold. Actually, to be fair, look, you're arguing for us to break new ground. The Supreme Court said as much in its non-stay stay order. It's surprising breadth of the arguments. You may be right. I'm sympathetic to the problems you point out, but you shouldn't minimize, you shouldn't say this is just an ordinary suit and all we have to do is follow A, B, and C and we get there. You're asking us to do a lot of new stuff, aren't you? We're asking the court to apply bedrock constitutional law and principles to a wholly new set of facts. And this would be the first time that it would have been done except for the district court. It would be the first time that it has been done, Your Honor, as to this factual context where the government admits that there's a monumental threat to people and to lives and that their acts in promoting fossil fuels and allowing for the extraction and all the affirmative things they do cause the emissions that are a substantial cause of climate change. So I want to sort of start with redressability. I want to end with redressability here. So how would a declaration here cure the injuries? So one part of the declaratory relief that we seek is to have the government's discounting practices also be declared unconstitutional. I'm sorry, say that again. Which part? To have the government's economic discounting practices declared unconstitutional where Dr. Joseph Stiglitz, a Nobel laureate, has explained in his declaration that the government devalues the lives of these young people when making decisions about energy policy and climate policy. So they value them less and they value adults today more and they are discriminated against because of that practice. And as the Supreme Court said in Plyler v. Doe, children are special and while they may not be a suspect class, the court provides a heightened level of review when government acts in ways that is harmful to children. And so declaring practices like that unconstitutional and declaring that their rights are infringed. And what's the authority? I'm sorry for that. Do you have a case that you can cite for that? I know you cited to the doctor. What's your best case authority for this court to strike down that provision? Well, I think in cases like Hills v. Gautreaux or even Brown v. Board of Education saying discriminating against a class of people, declaring that discrimination unconstitutional can provide redress. It tells government you can't do that anymore, even where there's no injunctive decree. So we've allowed you more time. I know this is a case of high public interest, but is there any concluding statement? If anybody has any other questions, I'll give you a chance to make a concluding statement. If I may, Your Honor, and I appreciate the extra time. So at the courts of Westminster, women and people of different races wouldn't have rights to bring cases. And if we look back on the 20th century, we can see that race and sex discrimination were the constitutional questions of that era. 
And when our great-grandchildren look back on the 21st century, they will see that government-sanctioned climate destruction was the constitutional issue of this century. And we must be a nation that applies the rule of law to harmful government conduct that threatens the lives of our children so that they can grow up safe and free and pursue their happiness. And that is what the founders intended. So we respectfully request that the court lift the stay and remand for trial. And thank you very much. Thank you. Um, Mr. Clark, uh, you had a minute and nine seconds left, uh, but we allowed nine minutes uh, for uh, plaintiff uh, appellants. Uh, I'm sorry for the for the appellees uh, to to go over. So you'll have ten minutes. Thank you very much, Judge McGee. I appreciate that. <clears throat> and may I start with a question? If sure. you, um, because we ended with the nature of the constitutional right that the. Um, that the plaintiffs in this case are seeking. I want to start with the nature of the constitutional right because you, I, I think the way you framed this earlier was they're kind of doing an end run. I think what you're, you're, what you're really saying is seeking a constitutional right is the end run, right? Seeking this as a, constitu a violation of a constitutional right. So your brief equates this right to a life-sustaining climate um, as a right to a pollution-free environment, which, of course, has been held not in and of itself to be a fundamental right. But the district court characterized the right and the violation of the right as, the, as knowing governmental action that affirmatively and substantially damages the climate system in a way that will cause human deaths, shorten human lifespans, result in widespread damage to property, threaten human food sources, and dramatically alter the planet's ecosystem. Doesn't a right of that limited scope significantly distinguish this from the pollution-free environment right that you raise in your briefs? So, uh, Your Honor, I, I want to answer that question as one quick point, which is that I'm not just uh, making, you know, a... Uh, uh, a substantive point. I'm also making a procedural point, right? We think the end run is procedural in terms of trying to dock these statutes, the, uh, you know, Clean Air Act, the Energy Policy Act, the APA, and so on. Substantively, we also think that... Well, one way of ducking the APA is to bring a constitutional claim, correct? Well, uh, I can't agree with that either, Your Honor, because the APA under Section 706, it's entirely possible to bring constitutional claims. It says that, you know, the courts have the power to test any issue of constitutional right and construe constitutional provisions in the course of doing ordinary administrative law cases. So it's not, it's a procedural ducking and it's a substantive but On the, on the procedural side, sure. your friend says, and I find this pretty compelling, gee, if I took on any individual agency decision and said it violated my constitutional right, assuming there is one, to this safe environment or pollution-free environment or whatever you want to call it, the agency would say there's, there's no evidence that our teeny tiny little action here deprives you of constitutional rights. Uh, and they would be correct because the granting of one lease or the, or the, or the allowing of, of various contracts might not by themselves do it. She's making a systemic argument, which I think she persuasively says she can't make through individual APA actions. What's your response to that? So, Assuming the right exists, obviously. Right. So, so, yeah, so I would say first, Your Honor, look, if you think back and, and you know, Ms. Olson was referring to uh, litigation about, you know, race and gender, Thurgood Marshall didn't bring one gigantic case to establish you know, racial equality, right? There was an entire program. It was unfolded, you know, step, step by step. There's nothing that would prevent them from following that approach, right? Basically just deciding, look, here's a particular action. We're going to, you know, we think it's a, it's a good case, good test case. We're going to argue that we can seek, you know, review of climate change issues there. And then if you win, you can get precedent. You can try to build on it. But discrimination it, is unconstitutional even on a small scale. Isn't the nature of this right, as they framed it, if it, if the court finds it exists, isn't it a global kind of right, or it doesn't it have to be pursued systemically? Doesn't that distinguish it from something like a Brown v. Board of Education or other cases where you can say, yeah, let's just start with segregating our public schools, 
and then we can move from there. How do they do that in a case where the very nature of the right is global CO2 emissions and the harms that I identified that the district court had stated? So Judge Staten, I would say, look, I'm ordinarily not in the business right of giving litigation opponents advice, but I would offer two things. Number one, they could petition multiple agencies to say, look, this is a problem that cuts across multiple agencies. We would like for you to engage in a rulemaking to do X, right? And then that would be reviewable in accordance with the relevant statutes. The public would get the chance to participate in that proceeding as Congress has specified. There would be a record for this court or any court to review in the ordinary administrative course fashion, and they could try to do that. This case tries to skirt all of that, and we think that's legitimate. Would standing be an issue in those circumstances? Well, I mean, we would make our standing arguments right. That actually gets to my second suggestion, Your Honor, which is that the only existing precedent that would allow a case like this to go forward as a standing matter is Massachusetts v. EPA, and it went forward on the basis that it was a state. So one remedy they have, admittedly a remedy they probably think is suboptimal, but that's not a reason not to constitutionally impose it on them, is to talk to representatives in their state, to their state attorneys general, to see if their state attorneys general will bring actions, if their state attorneys general will petition for action. Obviously, that happened at least once before in Mass v. EPA, and there are an entire body of states that regularly sue the executive branch at this point. So there are other options for them to pursue it. But wasn't the theory in Mass v. EPA a statutory theory? Wasn't it that the statutes required the EPA to act under these circumstances? Procedurally, the mechanism was the APA, Your Honor, the mechanism of petitioning for a new rulemaking. The International Center for Technology Assessment petitioned for a new motor vehicle and new motor vehicle engine emission standard under the Clean Air Act, but they did that not under the Clean Air Act because it didn't have that right, but under the APA. They could use a similar petitioning mechanism under the APA. Again, our arguments are that they're skirting all of those statutes. So why isn't the way of PLATA or Brown v. Board of Education the way to go? So in those cases, Your Honor, first of all, we think, as Judge Staten was recognizing, that they're distinguishable. They don't deal with separation of powers issues. And we also think that they're far more smaller scale, right? You're talking about a group of people, whether you're talking about prisoners or whether you're talking about people in a school district. It's a much more discernible and defined problem. Let me ask you about that. With Brown v. PLATA, it's the entire state of California and its entire state prison system. California is larger than many nations. Now, granted, it's not as large as our nation because it's part of it, at least I think it is. But it's the entire state prison system which required the state to come up with ways to meet that 137% overcrowding goal or minimize it. And the state had to decide, are we going to use prison reform? Are we going to use good time credits? Are we going to move prisoners from one prison to another? There were all sorts of discretionary, very significant decisions that the state had to make. And the court said, yeah, you have to do that. We're just giving you the goal that makes it constitutional now. Your Honor, that might have been a different case if there was a highly statutorified system you faced as to when federal courts are reviewing the actions of state or local governments. But that doesn't exist. You're basically talking about the 14th Amendment and the fact that it compels the states to make sure that they guarantee the rights that are protected by the 14th Amendment. In this situation, we don't have that equivalent. That's the first point. We're trying to vindicate a constitutional right that doesn't exist as a matter of first impression. And also, we're dealing with a situation in which Congress has actually exercised its powers to define what processes do through these highly reticulated administrative law regimes. And we think that there's just no warrant for a court ignoring those regimes and allowing people to go outside of it. So think about the implications of it. You can take the right that they're trying to seek now. You can fashion a whole bunch of new rights. You could fashion a right to say that, look, we have concerns in America about lots of people dying from heart disease. 
one contributing factor in that is that you know the federal government isn't encouraging exercise enough the federal government is subsidizing bad food that you know leads to an obesity epidemic we want to structural injunction to review the actions of all executive branch agencies and Congress insofar as it has regimes to regulate that you know issues that go to heart disease issues that go to to obesity that's just unthinkable that's a flat violation of the separation of powers and that brings me back really to where I started but and it brings me back to my initial question which is the way that they have framed the right here in the way the district court framed the right which seems to be very narrow we all courts deal in shades of gray all of the time you know we try we have to decide is it cruel and unusual punishment to have overcrowding at a certain level we have to look at the at human dignity and what what is what constitutes cruel and unusual punishment so courts make those kinds of determinations what is it that it seems to me why is it that the court can make a determination that obesity is different from something like a life-sustaining climate in other words what they're saying is every fundamental right unenumerated even that the court that the court has found before to be a constitutional right in terms of life and property etc all rest on what they've described as this constitutional right even though unenumerated so we would the courts would have to decide that yes it's new but why doesn't it fit within comfortably within the nature of other unenumerated rights such as the right to the right to an abortion the right to bodily integrity the right to marriage that the court has found exist in the life liberty and property rights of the Constitution the Fifth Amendment so I see my time has expired may I answer your question judge Staten so you know to two points the first answer is that we're dealing essentially with you know issues that the Supreme Court has always said are ones that have been committed to to Congress you know under usury V Turner Alcorn you know the adjustment of economic benefits and burdens is something that you know is up to the Congress to decide I mean essentially what they're doing you know is is there you know in reverse kind of trying to repeat the sins of of the Lochner case they're trying to do a massive takeover you know and moves constitutionalized doctrine which is for the the representative branches to decide through the democratic process what they want to vote for what they don't want to vote for and then you know as to other rights that the Supreme Court is recognized on an evolving basis under due process we think it's distinguishable from that if you take Obergefell I'll just use that as my final final example there's a lot of buildup for that right there's a lot of scaffolding first of all it's basically just a kind of apotheosis of an anti-discrimination requirement which has been existent in the law for centuries then you had cases like Lawrence versus Texas you had cases like Romer it eventually built up to Obergefell Obergefell didn't just sort of spring from the Supreme Court's head like you know Athena from Zeus right and so you don't have that historical development here what you have that they're trying to argue you know they have sort of stray references to Thomas Jefferson and Benjamin Franklin and John Locke's labor theory of value but you know those things don't provide the basis for a constitutional right and you know all of the intervening steps if they were ever going to happen you know they just haven't happened they're absent and we think isn't that in the end your essential argument after off the Constitution said there's a due process right to however it was defined by the district court we'd have a very different case here wouldn't we absolutely your honor so so your argument has to rest on the fact that there isn't such a right there is not such a right we don't think there's a state created danger here all those cases involve confinement essentially by the way I'm happy to see the Justice Department still standing behind Lochner well I'm not standing against against Lochner I hope I hope you continue that me against Lochner I'll give you an opportunity to make a concluding statement sure thanks again Judge Merguia and and members of the panel this is obviously an extraordinary case as Judge Hurwitz was was pointing out I don't think that any matter of trying to say that it's a it's a limited case will work it is a case that 
you know, is a dagger at the separation of powers. There are no logical stopping points on Ms. Olson's theory. You could take that and you could apply it to any Clean Air Act situation because people breathe air pollution, they can die. They can have lung dysfunction. They can have other forms of health problems. You could do it, and if you do that, you set the Clean Air Act for naught, which is our second bucket of arguments. You just can't do that. Those are the statutes that Congress defined the due process. And then as for the substantive issues, we don't think this constitutional right exists. There is no historical basis for it, as I was exploring. There's no state-created danger because, you know, on that theory, this argument was brought in the Obama administration. The president, was he deliberately indifferent, you know, to the fact that everyone's being exposed to this? Was he hurting himself? Was he hurting his family? It just doesn't make any sense, Your Honors. And then on the last issue of the public trust doctrine, which we haven't said anything about up to this point, I don't think we don't think that exists either because it's never been recognized against the federal government. We'd refer you to the Alec L. case from the D.C. Circuit. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you both, Ms. Olson and Mr. Clark, for your outstanding presentations here today. I know there's a lot of public interest in this case, and we will give it careful deliberation. We appreciate the interest from the public. We have another docket tomorrow morning over at the Pioneer Courthouse. If you all would like to join us there, we welcome you in the morning, 930. But we appreciate your attentiveness in the audience, and we are now in recess until tomorrow morning. Thank you very much.